Another mini-crisis, magnificent to motley, and a confidence game. What's that about? Well, we're going to explain. Welcome to Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Got a lot to cover, so let's get right to it. I'm Danny Clayton, Dr. Brian Jacobson in the studio. He's our chief economist. It's great to be here. And Dave Spano, president and CEO. You know, Danny, sometimes good news is bad news, and that's really what we got on Friday morning. We got a really, really good jobs report, but that is probably bad news for those who thought that interest rates were going to go down. That's right. Yeah, we the number that came out on Friday with non-farm payrolls, I think, just shocked everybody. When I was looking at the Bloomberg numbers, they always publish the uh, what different forecasters are saying it was way outside of the realm of right. what was even thought possible. We're about 200,000. It was kind of consensus, right? It, it was, yeah. I think that uh, depending on how who you ask, they were looking for 175 to 200,000 and right. suddenly you get over like 330,000. That is an incredibly strong number and previous months, those numbers were revised higher right. as well. So sometimes what we've had like last month, uh, you had a good number but you could almost dismiss it because because there were back month revisions lower. This time you really couldn't do that. But there were some weird things in the numbers though. When I looked at the aggregate number of hours worked, that actually went down 0.2% for the month. So even though the headline non-farm payroll number was really high, the total number of hours that people worked in the United States actually fell. Really so there's some incongruities in there that I think the market is trying to really wrestle with. But like you said, Anybody who is betting that the Fed is going to cut rates in March, maybe they need to uh, roll that bet into something in May or in June. Yeah, and that's exactly what you said. As you recall, you and I had that conversation a couple of months ago about what we think expectations were, and you thought they were going to kick the can down the road, and that certainly looks like the story. 3.7% unemployment and the participation rate at 62.5%, but wage rates are up, and that is a big part. When you look at the CPI, how it's how it's formulated, mm -hmm. CPI is built on a number of things, but wage growth is a big part of that. Yeah, wage growth can feed into especially the service sector part of inflation, and that's been a big concern. When we've looked at the breakdown of inflation into what part comes from goods and what part comes from services, during COVID, everything was moving up together, goods and services, but now a lot of the disinflation, so the lower inflation has been on the goods side. The service sector inflation has been coming down, but very gradually. It's almost been at a glacial pace. So you're talking about wages going up and unemployment rate going down. That really means the Fed does not have to lower rates. And that's what we're talking about. So if the Fed does not lower rates as expected, right, then people were thinking about lower mortgage rates mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. That may not happen in March or even April. Yeah. And I think that can actually explain a little bit of the market reaction to the payrolls number that we saw on Friday. Uh, big cap companies did quite well. But small cap, especially small cap value, those were actually really struggling throughout the day. And I think part of that is just because when you have those smaller companies, they tend to be more heavily levered, also a little bit more geared towards U.S. consumers. So they're not quite as globally focused. So the Fed will stay data dependent. So that is really looking in the rear view mirror. They won't look through the front windshield right now. So they'll stay data dependent. And we're going to have to look at how things progress going forward to make an assessment. 
of when they will lower interest rates. You're listening to Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Know the difference? One team, one plan, one fee. We do investment and retirement planning, tax planning, and estate planning. We do those four things, and we do it as a fee-only fiduciary. So let's switch gears, Brian, and really talk about what is really driving the market. Here we are moving closer to those big numbers on the Dow and the Mm -hmm. S&P 500, and that is really broken down by a number of individual names, and we saw some massive news out of Meta. Yeah, it was really interesting to watch Meta. Uh, other for those who don't know, Meta is Facebook, basically, uh, kind of the rebranded parent company, and they had some really good growth numbers for sales, especially from ad revenue. People have been a little worried about if consumers are pulling back a little bit, companies tend to pull back on marketing, which part of that is ad sales, and so kind of viewing Facebook, the ad revenue growth as a canary in the coal mine, and that was a little bit stronger than expected, but the biggest news to me was the fact that they decided that they were going to start paying a dividend. Right. And, and that's it's unusual for a growth company to come out and pay a dividend. Yep. And, you know, you look at who was affected by that. Zuckerberg, who owns a huge amount, could get a dividend as much as $700 million a year just on his stock alone. So that would be a taxable event for that guy. <laughs> it would be, yeah. So instead of having it just kind of riding as far as he can just sit on it with the capital gains and choose when to actually realize those gains, when dividends are paid, right, you don't have any control over that. If you own the stock, you get the dividend. Now, I guess the saving grace for him, uh, we don't want to cry for him too much, is that if it's a qualified dividend, it gets taxed at a favorable tax rate. So it's almost as though it is a long-term capital gain. But he has to realize that every year. And I think uh, Barron's was talking about how at the current dividend yield, that would be about, like you said, $700 million per year. (laughs) And I guess that does more than make up for his $1 a year salary that he notionally collects. Right. And he uh, he was getting beat up this week uh, in front of Congress, but uh, no tears uh, at all for him. You know, it's other news that came out of individual names. Apple had a mixed report and the energy sector continues to crank along. Yeah. So with Apple, they have their continuing woes with China. That growth has really slowed. And I was really fascinated by hearing the reports from Exxon, Shell, uh, these big oil companies where they're doing quite well from a revenue perspective. So even though we've seen this volatility in oil prices, uh, Exxon, it was really fascinating because they made a ton of money off of trading. It wasn't necessarily just from selling oil. They are actively involved in the market as far as hedging and sometimes taking some speculative positions with uh, the their oil exposure and they made a lot of money off of trading energy. Yep, so let's uh, recap what we just covered here in the last couple of minutes. Number one, good news is bad news. So we saw a good jobs report, which generally means that the Fed is going to delay in their interest rate cuts. That affects everything from what you're getting at the bank to the mortgage rates. And so we're going to have to continue to watch that the Fed is data dependent, which means they're going to look back at the data. And by the way, not only did they look back just one month, they went and revised a number of months back. Brian Jacobson is our chief economist, Dave Spano, our president and CEO. That is our Week in Review, always available on demand at the top of the hour, wherever you get your podcasts, also in the Axiom newsletter. Upcoming presentations you should know about, Women and Wealth, Third Thursday, happens on the 15th. Stocks, Bonds, and the Economy, oh my, always a fun group. This is useful stuff. Details at AnnexWealth.com, look for the Events tab. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show, Saturday, February 3rd. We're going to be right back on 620 WTMJ. We are back. Despano. Yes, sir. Ever had an audit? I have. 
Have you ever had a root canal? I have. Which is worse? Well, with the audit, they can throw you in the hooskow, and Danny, I'm too pretty to go to jail, so I think it would have to be the root canal, even though I don't want to do that either. Join us in a week. We're going to talk about IRS audits and red flags, because the IRS is coming. That's going to be good, and that's next week on Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Do you remember the show, The Magnificent Seven? It was a, know, probably 1960s, you know, Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen. Well, The Magnificent Seven has probably turned into the Fab Four, and I'm not talking about John and Paul here. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it's uh, not the, the, the Beatles, uh, that's for sure, because this is an interesting mix of companies of the Magnificent Seven. So for those who don't know, that refers to Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Meta, Microsoft, NVIDIA, and Tesla, the companies that were responsible for a good chunk of last year's returns. Now they're becoming quite a motley mix where you have a company like Tesla. Their stock has not done all that well year to date. They've given vague guidance. There's growing governance concerns. Uh, you also then have a company like Apple. China challenges. Their shares have been struggling as a result. Alphabet, they've had some weak ad growth. And a lot of these companies are really beginning to struggle. And it's the four that are remaining standing. So I think that the media is going to have to stop talking about the Magnificent Seven and come up with a new catchy name for them. Yeah, for sure. And, and you talk about those companies that are in there, obviously very tech-related, very tech-heavy AI related, and we were talking about an expansion of from those seven, which is now four, to the other 493, and we're starting to watch that. But for sure, every stock has been for itself. We go through those earnings reports, and you listen to some of these earnings calls, and quality matters. Yes, it does. And what a uh, great thing that we talk about around here is what is quality, right? Quality is something that a lot of people try to quantify, but almost by definition, you can't quantify quality. And so we think that it's really important to understand what you own, who are the managers, the stewards of the capital that you're investing. And a lot of these companies, they do have some things that we like as far as the good management. Uh, they also have low debt burdens, strong revenue growth, and seem to also have some cost discipline. A lot of companies over the last year or so, when they were trying to almost feed into some of the AI hype, is that they over-invested, maybe over-hired, and that's a trend that we've been hearing is that if companies give kind of weak guidance, it's sometimes accompanied by announcements of job cuts. And we really like the fact that we can look at those companies and measure them and perhaps less macro news right now, but there's a lot of wild cards that remain. The Fed still remains a wild card. Obviously, domestically, we have a major election coming up. And internationally, obviously, there is unrest around the world. And that's the reason why we say you should go through the process. If you've been listening to the show, you know that we offer this wealth metric, and it's actually a deliverable. You come in, you talk to one of our advisors, and they will give you an assessment of what you own, why it's in your portfolio, and how much you're paying for it. Do that at AnnexWealth.com. Click on that Get Started button. Up next, a fresh look at lifestyle creep. Also on the way, Ask Annex and a discussion about the great divorce and the impact on financial planning. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management? Welcoming back Kent Helene, Associate Wealth Manager at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome. Good to be back. Isn't this a well-timed discussion? Dealing with increasing prices is standard operating procedure now, but there's another type of inflation, lifestyle inflation. Kent, how do you explain that? I like to call it lifestyle creep. Uh, when you start talking about the natural evolution of your wage increases as you develop in your career, and at that point you buy maybe the, the nicer bottle of wine and you start looking and shopping for the nicer car. It's that lifestyle creep where we start getting used to that higher wage. 
It's not quite more money, more problems, but kind of, sort of. Yeah, exactly. All right. Let's point out that in no way we're saying that people shouldn't enjoy themselves and the fruits of their labor. This is more of a cautionary piece that's going to offer up some ideas that might lead to more fulfilling future. To get at lifestyle inflation or creep, do we need to challenge the status quo? You got to keep up with the Joneses? It's really something where you look at maybe instead of dealing with that lifestyle creep, now you're looking at money that you can use for future saving. If you keep your lifestyle the same and now you have that additional bucket for saving, can you retire early? Can you now take those trips that you want to take earlier in retirement because you've done that saving? Keeping up with the Joneses, now you're ahead of the Joneses. If you can keep that in the back of your mind and you know that you need to do that, Mm -hmm. right? Because otherwise you need the boat, you need the new golf clubs, all that stuff. All of the stuff, yeah. Right. So some are great at the next suggestion. I'm not. And that's tracking your spending, making a budget, sticking to it. Is that hard for people to do? Absolutely. When you're in your working age and you see that there's not really that financial stress of the the savings is going down, the credit card bills are going up, when it becomes a scenario of you're stable and cash is coming in, cash is going out, it becomes less of a, a need to track things. And just after a year or three or five of that, it becomes a scenario where you kind of lose track of that additional spending. Well, you got three kids, right? So what happens when one says, hey, dad, I want to play hockey. The other says, I want to play football. And one says, I want to dance. Yeah, it gets to the point where do you have to filter that out or do we start tapering back on that? Here's what I'm on board with. Prioritize your important expenses. And you're kind of getting at that. Looking at our baseline expense needs. So what you need to live. So you have the insurance, you have the, the real estate property costs. But looking at the things that aren't frivolous, but come down to are they a need or are they a want? And do you start filtering out the wants and then the priority wants? So maybe something that makes your life easier, maybe something that makes your life more efficient, but then down to the less wants where it's something that you could put off and or save for. Talking about lifestyle inflation with Kentaline, Associate Wealth Manager at Annex Wealth Management. You kind of touched on that, do it yourself. Now, I know some very successful, highly compensated people who find this to be tremendously therapeutic. On the other side, I know some very successful, highly compensated people who find this not to be important. They want that time freed up so they can spend it on other things. And that's a balancing act. It's really a matter of getting into that pattern of tracking the expenses, tracking the income. As with anything, it's the first step that really counts. So whether it's just breaking down and sitting down at the computer and finding out what's coming in, what's going out, I feel like that's the most scary step when it comes to what are we bringing in and what are we actually spending on Amazon, spending on restaurants. Um, So figuring out that, but it's really something that is beneficial for retirement planning. So finding that little extra nest egg to save and then maybe retire early. Let's talk about that because one way that you could fight that lifestyle creep is before anything else, start contributing to those tax advantage accounts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you're looking at, hey, we're saving 10% or 15% to a 401k, and if you break out a budget and then you could see maybe we could be saving 20% to that tax advantage plan and even potentially saving somewhere in a liquidity fund like a joint account or an individual account. It really becomes a thing where it's not hurting you. You're already spending that money. Now you're saving that money and looking into the future for your benefit. It's a game of inches. It is. Our final one is if you get the raise, you get the bonus. If you can, invest it. I remember watching uh, an interview with Shaquille O'Neal actually talking about his first big paycheck for the NBA and that he basically spent the whole thing and more, not realizing that he should be putting that aside. So then throughout the rest of his career, and he's a successful businessman now, looking at that, he's saving 25, 50% of that paycheck. 
it doesn't hurt the financial lifestyle. It just becomes that natural change you have to make to benefit yourself. Well, you know this as a Marine that a lot of times these guys, they start getting some money and then they're off base and these predatory lenders, they wind up with the Camaros and all that. You've seen that, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it is the biggest stereotype and it's there for a reason. There for a reason. <laughs> Ken Helene, Associate Wealth Manager at Annex Wealth Management, talking about lifestyle creep. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you, Danny. We'd love to meet with you, and we can do it in any number of places, including our brand new headquarters in Brookfield. We're also in Lake Country, Mequon, Appleton, downtown Milwaukee, right inside the Fister, Madison, Naples, Florida, and Libertyville, Illinois, and as close as your computer at AnnexWealth.com. Bottom of the hour, let's go to the WTMJ Breaking News Center. We're back. Let's do Ask Annex. You know what I'm going to say. Fred, do you want to say it instead? Go to our website. (laughs) I I don't know by heart yet. (laughs) Okay. If you want to get one of your questions on the air, you head to our website, AnnexWealth.com. Look for the Ask tab. Should I have asked you, Matt Morsey? I wouldn't have had it memorized. Let's let's meet everybody. Fred Coleman, CFP and a Wealth Manager at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome. Thank you, Danny. And we got Matt Morsey, Investment Team Manager, also a CFP. Hey, Danny. All right. Question number one on Ask Annex. My son is all revved up about the fire movement. Have you seen it work? Whoever answers this needs to explain fire first. The fire movement stands for financial independence, retire early. The fundamentals of this movement are great because we all know the earlier you start saving and the more you save, the better off you'll be in the long run. When you do this fire movement, you're talking about saving sometimes 50 to 70% of your income. So it's really extreme. There are two areas where I've seen people get into a little bit of trouble or a little bit of caution that you need to take. The first thing is that it's a very long time horizon. So if you're retiring in your 30s or your 40s, you have no clue what's going to be happening in your 50s, 60s, 70s, and even 80s. You don't know it, but you'll have health changes. You'll have future grandkids that you may want to send to college. You may want to do family vacations. Tax rates could be substantially different from now and 40 years from now. So the big thing is to really stress test your financial plan. Prepare for the what ifs. What if I change the state I live in? What if tax rates jump to astronomical amount? What if Social Security changes? All those things are important things that a lot of people who do the fire movement don't take into consideration. And that's one of the places I've seen it not work. The other thing that's overlooked with the fire movement is just the social aspect of the fire movement. When you retire, even if you're 50 or 60, it can be isolating. So if you're retiring at 30 or 40, all your friends are still going to be working. You may not have that many people to talk to. So I would suggest have someone else do it with you so you have somebody to hang out with and also, you know, just a partner to, to make sure that they're saving along with you. Aren't you living like a hermit, you know, to, to, I mean, seriously, if you're, you're saving what, how much, what percentage? I mean, some people are, you know, 50, 60, 70% of their income. Right. So, I mean, you might as well be in a cave. Yeah. I, I, that's certainly an element to it for sure. And it's something, this is something I've read about for probably 10 plus years. I think it's really, really interesting. However, the conversations when I get home about what we need to do, it usually stops pretty quick. Uh, You can't take your family to Disney while also trying to do this at the same time unless you're really really good with credit card reward points which a lot of these people <laughs> tend to be there's a really really big movement a big part of this is on online on, on blogs in terms of writing about it and these people that are detailing their story as they go through this the interesting part of that is they also make money off of those blogs and even though it's retire early what they really mean is retiring from that 40 hour a week 50 hour a week job 
and picking up a hobby that also makes money at some point, which for a lot of people, it's blogging or now podcasting as well, too. So they're not necessarily fully done, but it is really interesting. And yeah, you do have to sacrifice a lot. What is really helpful on a lot of those blogs, though, is they detail what they do, right? You know, a lot of people spend money on Amazon to buy books. Well, there's a library that you could go to for free, you know, and then they're going saying, what other events does the library have? What are all the free things that we could go do? You know, like here with the zoo is free on certain days. So if they're going to go to the zoo, it's going to be that day, you know, so they're really highlighting a lot of those. But I think it's a really interesting movement. But yeah, the, the what you really hit on at the end for there is that you're 40 and you're at the McDonald's getting the coffee during the day and you're spending a couple hours there because there's nothing else for you to do. So you that gotta, is a gotta, hard adjustment there. Yeah, You got to be 70 to do that. Yeah. <laughs> they might kick you out of the McDonald's. Next on Ask Annex. I believe I know what it means when a stock is rated as buy, sell, or hold. What does neutral signify? Also, with sell, does that literally mean people should sell? Yeah, that's a good question because when you watch CNBC or different programs or read, a lot of times you're going to hear that that type of language from analysts. Neutral generally is going to mean that you're neither bullish nor bearish on something. So whether you're indifferent as a whole or if you're managing a portfolio against a benchmark, you're going to be at a neutral weight or right on that benchmark. You know, internally here, we might say that we're overweight equities or underweight equities. But a lot of times we're just neutral equities, which means that we're going to be at the line that for that risk tolerance is kind of that long-term average that we want to be. A lot of people talk about the 60-40 portfolio. If you're at 60% equities on that, you're neutral on equities. You're not overweight or underweight. You're neutral. And then on the sell side, does it mean that people literally should just sell? I would never just buy or just sell because somebody on TV or you read an article that says to do that. Always should be in context of your portfolio as a whole, your financial plan. These decisions should should not be made by someone who doesn't know your situation. Let's sneak one in real quick. Can a revocable living trust continue on for generations in the future by adding or removing trustees? Well, the key is revocable means that the trust can be changed at some point. So it's important to change it while you're alive to make sure that when life situations come up, maybe you have kids, maybe your kids get married, that you're changing that trust to make sure that it reflects what you want when you pass away. Because once you pass away, it becomes irrevocable. So whatever that trust says, that's what the trustees have to follow. Fred Coleman, CFP, Wealth Manager on Ask Annex. Thanks. Thanks, Danny. And Matt Moore is the Investment Team Manager, also CFP. Thank you. Thank you. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management. Deanne Phillips, Director of Client Learning Development, Wealth Manager at CFP. Hello, Deanne. Hello, Danny. In all those titles, I didn't mention CDFA, and you are one. That's a Certified Divorce Financial Analyst. In a nutshell, what does that entail? Well, a CDFA helps people and their attorneys achieve an equitable divorce settlement. While a CDFA is not an attorney and, and they don't practice law, they do have financial knowledge to assist in the division of assets and local divorce law, including tax consequences, distribution strategies, financial planning. My job as a CDFA is to provide an in-depth financial analysis analysis and advice relating to the splitting of assets and really giving somebody a look at what their picture will be like after the divorce. Speaking of that, we're going to talk about the gray divorce phenomenon. What is that? Well, Danny, we're not going to like this, but they mean people over 50. Yep, they call them gray. But that's really because the divorce rate in this category has actually doubled since 1990 for Americans over the age of 55, and it's tripled since then for those over 65. So there's a number of reasons. What are some of the biggest behind the gray divorce? People are living longer. They're living healthier lives, advances in medicine and health care, 
and so they're seeking a divorce later in life. As we age, we experience changing priorities and expectations. So maybe earlier in your life, you put your partner's career ahead of your own, or maybe now you want to have time to focus on your own aspirations and goals. Sometimes I hear it's because of empty nester syndrome. The kids are gone, and now the couple has less in common. Sometimes people drift apart over the years and feel like strangers living under the same roof. A lot of times, Danny, it can be a difference in active versus passive lifestyles. I do hear that a lot. Also, we need to add in the fact that social norms are different now than they were decades ago. Today, couples are more likely to end it if they're unhappy. That social stigma is less. Well, remember in the 70s, it was scandalous, right? Oh, yeah. Any difference generationally between, like, I don't know, boomers or Generation X? Sure. So taking it from the 70s today, you know, those Gen Xers were born from 1965 to 1980. And they actually, in that 15 years, came of age during a time when there was a declining divorce and remarriage rates. Their numbers are a little more stagnant. But gray divorce for older adults who are the baby boomers, that's the number that continues to grow. Let's talk a little bit about implications because a gray divorce has to have implications that are wide-ranging financially. They do. So women in particular tend to initiate gray divorce, but also as a group as a whole, they tend to not fare as well financially. Women still tend to take more placement of the children if they're still minors at home or dependents, and they bear those costs typically. And women who divorce after the age of 50 as a whole have spent more time out of the workforce raising kids or taking care of family members, and that can set their career trajectory back potentially, and they earn less over time because of it. We're talking to Deanne Phillips about the gray divorce. Let's say we're at the point where all hope is is lost. What are the first steps that somebody should take when proceeding down the road during a gray divorce? Well, first off, you know, we have to acknowledge that, of course, you spent your life building your financial and personal goals, and you've got this financial nest egg over the course of your working life, and all of a sudden, it seems like it's being cut in half, and you have less time to recover financially. So there might be an issue where somebody has to go back to work longer, or even back to work for the first time in a long time to make ends meet. And by, you mean all help lost, I, I assume you mean all help lost for the marriage. So yeah, yeah. That's what I you mean. really have to yeah. do, see what your financials will look like afterwards. You need that new plan, a new budget, new income included in the budget. And don't forget new tax consequences, right? You'll be potentially filing as a single or head of household. This is where financial planning really helps. Having that financial person work with you and your attorney during the divorce while proposing how assets can be split. That can be the difference between a successful plan afterwards or no. Living considerations are also potentially a challenge for older divorced people, especially if you have to refinance a mortgage into your name. That can be tricky if you don't have earned income or if your income is now going forward cut in half. Making sure that you get that lending and finalized and that you'll be okay before your divorce is final and that the marital settlement agreement is finalized. You're going to get that lending before. That's important. Now, this includes proving income to even get a loan. And then if you have kids ironing out the expenses, including covering college, who's going to pay for what. That can be equally important before the final settlement so there are no surprises. One last mention, but not least, 
health care. Divorce is an instance that does give a group insurance covered spouse extra time on their ex's COBRA plan, but understanding that expense is really important as well. Annex expands to meet the needs of our clients. We are offering more. Right. We just launched Annex Divorce Services. Now you can find this on our website at AnnexWealth.com under what we do. Annex Wealth Management Divorce Services specializes in the financial planning needed to execute those terms in a marital settlement agreement, as well as the planning and recalibration in the days after divorce. We actually help you create a plan that considers both short and long-term outcomes after the divorce, real-life, real-time planning, including projection of the asset division, avoiding unintended tax consequences, interpreting your marital settlement agreement in light of your financial plan, understanding and effectively distributing those quadros, those qualified domestic relation orders, a rigorous review of strategies and options, and last but not least, the impact on your estate plan. Deanne Phillips, Director of Client Learning Development, CFP, Wealth Manager, and a CDFA at Annex. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ. We're back. Hope you can join us in a week. We're going to talk about IRS audits and red flags, and especially they're going, and I say they, meaning the IRS is going to be concentrating on high net worth individuals and larger corporations. Dave, one of the offerings that we have at Annex Wealth Management is Annex Private Client, and those individuals and families have complex needs and high net worth. That's why we talk about stuff like this. Yeah, there's no question, and that's the reason why we go through with those folks in our private client and talk a lot about friction, and friction is a number of things. One is the cost of the investments and, and the delivery of that, and number two is the taxation. Mm-hmm. And, Brian, you know, we talked to earlier in the show about this dividend that Zuckerberg is going to get, you know, no, no tears for him, but $700 million if you extrapolate what he owns times the dividend rate. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a big number, but there is a difference about how you receive income. There's taxable income, yep. there's tax-free income, some is qualified and some is not. That's right. Yeah. And actually, ever since the 1980s, there were a few rules that changed that encouraged businesses to start returning money to shareholders more through share buybacks as opposed to dividends. And, you know, if you kind of think about, well, why might they want to do that? If it's a share buyback, the investors can time when they actually want to recognize any sort of gain. And so you can get then hopefully long-term capital gains rates and really maybe push that taxable event out into the indefinite future. When it's a dividend, that comes out periodically. You lose that optionality around the timing. Let me just jump in. The difference between long-term capital gain and short-term capital gain. Yes. So if you hold a security for 12 months or less, so it's one year or less, it is going to be taxed as though it is ordinary income. And if you are a high income individual, those top marginal tax brackets, those rates right now, 37%. Plus, there's this thing called the net investment income tax, which is used to help fund uh, Medicare, 3.8%. So effectively, you could be talking about 40.8%. That's short term. Just federally. federally. Add your state tax on that, it could go over 50%. Exactly. Yeah. And if you live in New York City, you also have a city tax to add on top of that. It can get, it can really add up. Now, if it's long term, so if it is one year and one day or longer, then all of a sudden that tax rate can drop to 20%, then plus you still have that 3.8%, so right. 23.8%. But that is a huge difference going from, say, 408 down to 23.8. So going from short-term capital gains to long-term capital gains is a huge benefit. And the second thing we talk about income, let's move over to the second bucket from taxable income to 
tax-free income. Yes. So the tax-free income, you can get that in a variety of sources. Obviously, if you have a tax-advantaged savings account, like let's say an IRA, a 401k, that money can grow. It can appreciate without the taxes. You obviously have to worry about then, is it a traditional IRA or 401k, in which case it's taxed as income when it comes out? Or is it a Roth where you paid the tax going in, but then you don't have to worry about it coming out? Or even better, is it an HSA, one of those health savings accounts, tax-free going in and coming out. It's like the best of all possible worlds, right. but they put severe limits on the amount that you can put into those types of accounts. And let, let, let's talk about the last piece, which is tax deferred income. Most people generally think about saving in, for example, an IRA or a 401k, yep. a great, because not only it's pre-tax as well and tax deferred, a lot of insurance agents mm-hmm. are seeing every problem as a nail and the hammer is the annuity. There is benefits to that, but it's sure. really you have to know what you're paying. And that's the reason why I say that almost every week because we see people coming back to us and see that they're caught in an annuity with a 10-year surrender charge where the insurance agent gets paid substantial amount of commission. Know what you own. You need a broad toolbox. You know, you don't just need a hammer and a saw. You actually do need a broad toolbox, especially when you are in that high net worth, some of the complex situations. You need to have a scalpel sometimes. You need to have a variety of instruments at your disposal. You know, if you think about the dividend paying stocks as an example, that can be very attractive, uh, especially if it's a qualified dividend. You hold it for longer than 60 days because if you're kind of churning these things, you're trading actively and you get that dividend, then it's it's actually you don't get that qualified dividend tax rate. Dr. Brian Jacobson is our chief economist. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Dave Spano, president and CEO. Good job. Thank yeah, you very much. It, I appreciate you. it, folks. If we look back on this last hour, it's just been a glimpse of what we do at Annex Wealth Management. Just a glimpse. You need to get the whole picture. Head to our website. Spend some time there. Read our Know the Difference checklist. We stand by fiduciary advice, comprehensive strategies, and empowering education. And we will meet you right where you're at. It might be comprehensive wealth if you're actively planning for or you're already in retirement. That's a great spot. Annex private client, complex needs and high net worth. We've got teams built to really, really help. Another great place and recommend this to your your friends or maybe somebody just starting out. Annex Ignite. It is a great place to start. This is important stuff. I know you want to get it right and we can help. The website, AnnexWealth.com. Work with a fee-only fiduciary. Click that Get Started button at AnnexWealth.com. Thank you for spending time with us this weekend. Have a great week. See you next Saturday at 10. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show, 620 WTMJ.